Hello, Fiola. Hi. Can you hear me? I can, yeah. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm pretty good. Welcome to Stay Home, a podcast helping to share your stories of lockdown, wherever you are. Hosted by yours truly, Fiola Bunyaku, from London, and my various guests from around the world. Each episode will capture the unique experiences and perspectives of our guests, helping the world stay connected and less alone in these strange times. I was born in London, England, in northwest London, and um, I was raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, right on the Ohio River, in uh, a small little uh neighborhood in Cincinnati. I am at my boyfriend's house in South Austin in Texas. Texas. Okay. And how long have you been there? I've been here since March 17th. As of April 7th, 2020, the total number of reported deaths from COVID-19 in the United States of America had reached an incredible 10,906. The US strategy is complex, with most states adopting stay-at-home measures involving the closure of schools and local businesses. I am in Texas because I am with my boyfriend, we're making art together, we're making music, and uh, what started as a visit is turning into a situation where it's actually dangerous for me to leave. I've, I've looked at flights and I've looked at the possibility of going home or going to visit another friend in Miami, and that's just something that's not feasible right now. And how's that going for you guys? I mean, you were long distance by the sound of things and now you've gone from that to suddenly living together and social distancing together. Uh, we're with his roommate too. He has a roommate. So it's their house um, and they actually are starting a production company together. It's uh, called Exerbia Films. It's a production company that they're working on and uh, I, Ian and I have actually been dating for a year next week. We're going to be celebrating like our year um, anniversary around April 14th. Um, so we actually are in a long distance relationship. And yeah, I guess it is kind of intense to kind of go from, you know, my space. I actually keep thinking about, you know, what I would be doing if I were at home and, and how I would be using this time if I were in my space. I have a little apartment in Yellow Springs. It's got a porch and I have like a, a porch set outside, like chairs and a couch and a little table. And usually I have a lot of friends over. I kind of joke that my house is kind of like the one stop on everyone's way home because I, I always have people coming by and um as we started to inch into quarantine in Ohio it was much more rapid than other places around the United States but as we started to go into that 
people started coming over to my house less frequently and um, I just kind of had less of a desire to be at home. And my boyfriend was like, you know, you're invited here. And um, it was already a plan that I was going to come and visit for a week this spring during uh, spring break from my university. And so that was already kind of a plan. And we both just decided to to do it. And we've been having a lot of fun. It's uh, been taking a lot of communication, of course. I think I have an interesting relationship with quarantine. I'm actually not that uncomfortable with it. I've had a lot of experiences in my life that have relegated me to a hospital bed or a wheelchair. Um, I've spent a lot of time in hospitals and um, I have been wheelchair bound for a couple of months of my life, probably about four months accumulatively. Um, And so for me, you know, I tend to kind of make my space where I am. What do you mean by that? Could you um, expand on that a little bit more? Um, Tell us about your period of illness and how how you managed to get through it. Um, Yeah, so in 2012, I had an ischemic stroke in the right side of my brain and it paralyzed the left side of my body. Um, yeah. That's a truly um, awful experience um, and, and quite unique. Um, when you first told me about all of this, um, did a bit of research and, you know, stroke care in the US costs the country an estimated 34 billion each year. And you were in your early 20s when you had your stroke, um, young adults, can compromise 10 to 15% of all strokes, which I found quite a surprising statistic. Um, What was your experience of the healthcare system when uh, this happened to you? I um, have had an interesting experience actually when I was in the ambulance after, so after the stroke and I had to crawl up like 10 concrete steps and like ripping my skin. I'm completely covered in blood and screaming for help, but I didn't recognize my own voice. And that's a sign of stroke is, is the voice changes. And so I was listening to myself screaming and it was as if I was watching myself in third person. And, um, the guy that I'd moved in with, his uncle lived upstairs and was taking a shower and he heard me and he said, hold on, let me finish taking a shower. And he just kept showering and kept like singing really loudly. And, and so I was dying, practically lying on the, on the ground and covered in blood and ambulance came, um, 15, probably, I don't know, 10 minutes later, I was not really conscious at the time. And I'm lying in the, in the driveway. So the ambulance comes and almost hits me in the driveway but so they finally get me into the ambulance and they're driving me to a hospital and I you know through partially part of my mouth is like um is my mouth is my smile is crooked because part of my mouth is drooping the left side and I I told him out of the right side of my mouth that part of my mouth that wasn't paralyzed that I didn't have insurance and he looks at me And his eyes were, the ENT's eyes were like really soft. And I remember they were blue. 
and he lo- he looks over at the driver and here I am, you know, I can't move the left side of my body at all. I'm on a stretcher. I'm looking up at the ceiling of an ambulance. The ambulance is moving. So I'm shaking. I'm on a gurney that's metal and it's loud and it smells like rubbing out. It smells like alcohol. And I have an IV in and um, he looks up at the driver and he says, hey, George, she doesn't have insurance. And they just do a U-turn. And they st- and he's like, okay, we're going to take you to the uh, a Catholic hospital because they'll have a charity. Um, and so they took me, they took me to a completely different hospital. They rerouted me in the middle of this, you know, emergency where time is of the essence at, because uh, I wouldn't have been able to, I would have been racked with so much debt from a, a hospital stay at a private hospital. Um, and most of the healthcare here is privatized. Connor relies on Medicaid, a federal and state program which helps make healthcare accessible to those with varying circumstances. If Connor were to catch COVID-19, the sort of healthcare she would have access to under Medicaid would depend heavily on which state she was in at the time. the care that people aren't able to get because of um, not being able to afford it is a reality. And I think a lot of people are really feeling that stress and that pressure. And hopefully I, I'm not, I'm hoping to, you know, take all the precautions I can to not get sick. It makes sense that um, you're taking more precaution than is being advised by the federal government uh, or by Trump himself. Um, it's an interesting debates are coming up now about whether um, the many different varieties of healthcare providers that exist in the US are actually able to do the job of combating large scale public health emergencies such as coronavirus. Uh, that's it, as opposed to a single payer system. Um, and what I mean by that, um, a single payer system is a type of universal healthcare system. It's something that uh, listeners in the UK would recognise as the NHS. Um, uh, I'm just wondering, I think the safety net of the NHS um, can lead people to, perhaps some people, not to take their health as seriously as others. Do you feel that you've got a newfound responsibility um, for your body? Uh, or perhaps the word is a newfound respect for your body after having so much happen to you? Is that why you're perhaps a bit more cautious about taking those steps to prevent yourself from catching the coronavirus? So when I was paralyzed, I um, couldn't move my body. And that is not only is that extremely frightening, um, but it's probably many people's worst nightmares. I mean, actually being kept in the body and and unable to move, uh, it's a very shocking thing. It's not something that you really expect, I really expected to happen to me. Um, And it is kind of a, a medical anomaly that being confined in not only my body, but to a hospital room and to, you know, people poking and nurses and medical professionals doing their jobs, but also poking and prodding me with needles and 
and pinching me and, and also the process of physical therapy, you know, having to work with a part of my body that's, that's not working with me. And that's, um, you know, I remember my, my hand, so my left hand like curled up and it was so, my muscles were so, um, clenched. They were so clenched that my nails were digging into my palms, were cutting into my palms. And I remember the morning that my fingers finally stayed open and, and I was able to hold them open on my own. And it was like, I felt like a little kid. I was so excited. The physical therapist was so excited. We were both like giggling and, and like squealing. And um, I think for me, I, I grew to have a relationship with my body that was very maternal. You know, I, I came to care for my body not only as a being but as you know a mechanism and a and as a tool that is both working with me and who I am working with as well and I think that's relevant because our bodies exist in the world and in space right and if you're relegated as we are you know for those of us who um, are in homes you know being in in this space your body also kind of becomes amplified. So how do you view your body now then? Are you a bit more gentle with yourself? Are you less demanding of it? Have you essentially been seeing your body in the same way? Yeah, I mean, I um, I guess have a lot of gratitude for my body. And uh, since that, in 2017, I was uh, hit by a truck. Um, <laughs> so it just, it's, it's like, it gets worse and worse. It's like a horrible B movie. That's just like, you know, you know, one disaster after another. Um, but I, I've been, I have been making sure to stretch. Um, I've been going out and my boyfriend and I went for a run yesterday and we talked about going on runs every day together. Um, I'm not running isn't my favorite, uh, especially because I have been through a lot. Uh, it's not really, really easy for me to run, but you have to push yourself to do things that are uncomfortable. I think to a large extent, I do agree with you, but do we really have to push ourselves all the time? Um, does there come a point where we're actually our body needs something else to what we're giving it? Uh, for example, running can be quite tough on your joints, especially if you're running outside like many people are at the moment. Um, and I think that um, <laughs> there's been a big push, especially on social media, with people sharing workouts and sharing uh, their fitness tips. And it's it can put a lot of people under pressure to exercise in a way that's perhaps not right for their bodies at this moment in time. Oh, um... Yeah, no, I mean, that's true. Everyone should do what's what's best for their body. And I, I realize I have been saying like you a lot, but I, I don't mean I'm, I'm specifically talking to myself. I think if I don't push myself, I can have a tendency to um, I think I inherently have kind of a cares carefree spirit to a point where I do kind of struggle with um, discipline at times and I think that has actually really led me to where I am today in a lot of ways uh, you know I've 
been a student at numerous schools and throughout my life. And um, I think that this university that I'm going to now will be one of the first that I'll actually graduate from. And uh, I think a lot of it, like it definitely doesn't even have to be exercise. I, my neck was broken in the accident. And for me, it's really powerful just to do neck rolls, honestly, to extend my neck and to, um, you know, roll my neck in circles back and forth. That's a big, big activity for me, too. So I, I also understand that there's a range. I think in times like these, um, we're hearing a lot about having resilience and being resilient. Um, and to be resilient means to overcome something, to be uh, tough natured. And I think what um, your experiences have, have shown us, like you say, you have been through a lot, but I don't think it shows us a toughness. I think it shows us a very, a gentleness actually, quite the opposite. You're living uh, a very authentic life, very authentic, happy life, uh, despite what, what happened to you. And I think that is a measure of true resilience. And I guess I'm just wondering if that's something you've had to build or work hard at, or perhaps that's something that um, is a result of your recent experiences with your health. So I, I think that my childhood helped me develop a sense of resilience because I grew up um, in a household with an alcoholic and uh, there were a lot of times and a lot of um, situations that I needed to kind of def- defend myself and also just fend for myself. So that was uh, emotionally and physically then? Yeah, physically, emotionally. Um, like I found myself at times, you know, like late at night running away from my house at a young age and, you know, needing to calm myself down enough to go to a neighbor or, you know, go to my grandparents who live not far by. Um, or, and, you know, um, also the resilience to make my relationships with my family, like, stable. I think having to, like, come together with my family has helped me to uh, just communicate effectively with people. Um, and I suppose that, um, sorry to cut you off, but I suppose that's something that a lot of people might struggle with, um, sort of rebuilding those relationships with their families. They may not have the emotional capacity or tools, the emotional tools to do that. Um, and I think that's where mental health services come in and social workers and I just don't know if that's a service that's getting enough attention at the moment, considering what's going on with the virus worldwide. And uh, where I'm going with this is that um, there's probably loads of people uh, in similar scenarios to the ones you've been in in the past where they they want to run away, they want to escape the an abusive home or this, uh, the particular situation they're in, or they just want someone to reach out to, but they can't do that because of um, the lockdown that's in place um, and the social distancing that's in place in many countries. Yeah, well, I I really do think that everything is dependent on interpersonal relationships. And by everything, I mean like a sense of cohesion in the world. Like we don't exist in 
in vacuums. We exist with within the networks of the people around us, right? Yeah, and um, you know, I read recently that more than a quarter of Americans um, live alone, whilst many others, I'm assuming, are trapped uh, inside. Hopefully, with lovely families, lovely supportive supportive families, um, but others. Um, hopefully in the minority in abusive relationships and uh, family structures and uh, you know the prevalence of stress fear and grief are already on the rise um, way before COVID-19 I think there's been the need for people to reach out to each other has never been greater like you say we don't exist uh, in a vacuum Um, and I know that before the pandemic struck the US was already experiencing a peak in people requiring mental health services Um, And unfortunately, uh, it's common knowledge in many countries that domestic violence in families tends to spike during periods where families spend a lot of time together, uh, notably during Thanksgiving in the US and Christmas um, elsewhere. There's something uh, interesting that I came across when I was doing some research for um, your episode. Um, Ken Duckworth um, is the Chief Medical Officer for the US National Alliance on Mental Illness. And it's not really a system, he says, uh, of the US mental health infrastructure. It's, um, and we touched on this earlier on in the episode, it's, it's a patchwork quilt, he says, of individuals and well-meaning policy people trying to provide large numbers of services to large numbers of people in a payment structure that is varied and complex. Um, he kind of undersells at the end, he says it's quite a challenge. So whilst it's a challenge to understand the system, it must be an even greater challenge to navigate it. Uh, There's obviously an increased need for mental health services during the coronavirus pandemic. And I'd like to know more about your perspective on this, having dealt with physical uh, illness and setbacks and how that that gave you a strength of character, uh, strength to carry on. A lot of people find it strange when I'm telling them my stories and I'm laughing because a lot of the experiences that I'm laughing about are really horrifying experiences um, and really traumatic experiences like being left for dead in a basement in Chicago or being hit by an 18-year-old Coke dealer on the side of the road in Yellow Springs. I started using comedy as a way to handle intense experiences, uh, primarily because of my grandmother and my mom. I think that um, the women in my family have had to deal with a lot of things and they've always been kind of sinister and have had like kind of a dark sense of humor. And I remember actually my grandmother was the first person I called after the stroke And at this point, I'd been through the emergency room, so I'd been through the acute care, uh, but I was in a room, and I was in a room with this woman who had also had a stroke a couple days ago, and she had an IV in her right hand, and she was a really big woman, and she had huge boobs, and so I called her Big Boob Judy. Her name was Judy. And uh, the first person I called after the stroke was my grandmother, and Big Boob Judy was like kind of singing in the background when I was talking to my grandma. And um, I told her, I said, Grandma, I'm, I'm in the hospital. I'd, I've, I've had a stroke. And 
my eyes are watering and I can hear her tears through her voice. And her voice is very high-pitched and very lyrical and sing-songy. And she said to me, well, baby girl, now you have more material for your comedy. I was studying at Second City at the time. Second City is an improv comedy school. And um, I think improv for me has been kind of an, an intuitive art form because uh, my life is very spontaneous. I kind of do things on a whim. I'm kind of wild and open to experiences and adventures. And that has brought me to London where I was, you know, living as a teenager. And I've lived in on the beach in Hawaii for a couple of months and have gone lobster diving in, on at midnight, you know, with the full moon. And I've had a lot of really interesting experiences. And I think being in those, that position of being in my bed or in my body, you know, whether it was that moment of, oh my God, I, I'm having a stroke, I'm dying, because there was that moment. Uh, then there was the moment like my arm went limp. I couldn't feel my arm anymore. I couldn't move my leg. You know, my brain was losing oxygen. Then there was also the moment of being struck by a vehicle and being flown 50 feet in the air and landing on the right side of my body on the ground. And then my moment of consciousness coming to consciousness and recognizing, oh, my God, I was hit by a truck. You know, those paralytic moments, those moments of true terror when you kind of your body is beginning to digest and, and like, you know, you've come out of when your brain turns off, when you're traumatized and it's a protective mechanism. So for me, writing and seeing myself in kind of this third person perspective has allowed me to create a sense of space. And comedy allows me to fill that sense of space with something sweet because those experiences are far but. You know, they're horrifying and they're sad and they're traumatizing and they all happen to me, but I am not those things. I'm not horrifying and sad and traumatizing and that isn't my full story. So would you be willing to share some of the other creative outlets uh, that you have with us. I know you're working on some music and uh, I think I think I want to play it because um, you can really hear your voice in the song. This song was something that Ian came to me. He had the guitar part. He is a guitarist and an artist who's in a band uh, called Shane Cooley and the Midnight Girls and uh, they're an Austin band, and he's a producer. He's been a producer for 10 years and uh, is now starting a production company. Anyway, he had a microphone set up, and... Um, he just wanted to see what I would do with this guitar part to kind of improvise and play with it.
So we've just been exploring playing with melodies and harmonies and um, I got really shy at first because sometimes when I get performance anxiety, I get I get really shy and I had to listen to the song a couple times before I could start like coming up with something. But then I just kind of once it started, it just kind of rolled. Um, so the song is a little it's a little grungier, a little punk or um, punkier. <laughs> punker is not a word. <laughs> I think that it's important to remember that we can do hard things. That's something that's been resonating in my heart recently, you know, just recognizing that a lot of what we go through is difficult and it's hard. And I think particularly in the United States, there's this idea or philosophy that tries to, again, sugarcoat things or, or, um, maybe not look at, at, at the hard things or not talk about the hard things. And I think that it's important to actually lean into those places and to allow them to, you know, speak to you. So I've just been listening as best I can and um, trying to remember that I can do hard things. Because sometimes I forget. <laughs> You forget sometimes, so... Yeah, definitely. Thank you to Connor for participating this week. And thank you to everyone else for listening. Now, if you would like to be on an episode of Stay Home, please get in touch with me over social media. Follow our Instagram and Twitter at Stay Home Podcast. Yep, it's the same handle for both accounts. This is also where you'll be able to find updates on upcoming episodes and more. Could you also tell me about the Dave Chappelle link? Oh yeah. I think people would be interested in that. So Yellow Springs, Ohio, um, the village that you're living in or that you're from, um, <laughs> that's also where Dave Chappelle lives. Um, he's mentioned it in his stand-up um, so he's, he's your neighbor. That's pretty cool. Considering you're also an aspiring comedian. Sure. Um, so start from the beginning as you're explaining to someone that doesn't know you. So in one of his Austin city limits shows, Dave Chappelle says, I live amongst the whites. I am one of those whites. <laughs> that's that's my joke that's like so he was literally talking about me I'm his neighbor (laughs) he's like I'm I live amongst the whites I'm like hi Dave (laughs) you coming to the gala next weekend he's like the (laughs) who's I dropped my scarf at a coffee shop the other day and he picked it up for me and I, I was like oh thank you and he was like oh Oh, hey and I was like hey <laughs> can I get back to my friends please <laughs> so rude <laughs> <laughs>